This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. All right, guys, we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Again, my name is Selena Hill. I'm here with Alyssa Fuchs, who has a really cute plaid shirt on. I've been complimenting that button down. I think it's really cute. (laughs) Jackie Cohen, she is wearing a sweatshirt that says, Angry Liberal Feminist Killjoy. I wore this last week, too. (laughs) I just remembered that I wore the same thing. I'm just going to wear it every (laughs) show because... I love it so right, much. right, basically, and then we I have you washed it. I definitely did. I, I'm well, even if you I'm didn't, we together. wouldn't judge you. We wouldn't judge you. <laughs> and then we Who have says we wouldn't. Well, <laughs> I wouldn't. I can only speak for myself. You're right about that. <laughs> and then we have Stanley Fritz, who's back. He was absent last week. You missed me. I know. I'm yeah. handsome. Not I'm that funny. much. We love I'm your funny. sexy chocolate. That's what my it is. sexual <laughs> chocolate. That's <laughs> what it is. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Laced with Hennessy and curse words. Pretty so much. And jeggings. And he is back with his jeggings. All right, guys. <laughs> so Tuesday night, Donald Trump addressed. A, he had a, a joint session of Congress where he gave a speech. It's sort of like the State of the Union address, except for it's not, even though it's basically the, the same elements and factors were there. And, you know, during this time, he actually stuck to the script. He read off the teleprompter and he addressed a number of things like health care, immigration, uh, the budget. He talked about a lot. Um, he also lied about a lot, according to truth according to real facts and not alternative facts um we'll talk about that as well um you know during this time i you know we saw a lot of the republicans clapping throughout the entire speech they were standing up they were applauding him especially when he said things like we're going to continue to build this wall and other things that were problematic but i will say he received a really good reaction from mainstream press yeah they i mean certain people and we're going to get to van jones but a lot of the mainstream press were, were just praising him for you know staying focused in his speech and not going off on a tangent um for sounding presidential um for uh, even i think gail king said that he spoke from his heart and what? like she was like like people were One heart. Joke? no like people were like this was and then van jones was like this was the moment he God. was presidential because um he did address. He did. He bring- didn't sound like a five-year-old. I mean, like, I mean, have we lowered the bar that much? Right? Like, it's not that hard for. I mean, for him to sound presidential, right? But that is the bar that we've set. Is like, at least he didn't sound insane. And so we're going to. <laughs> oh, don't worry. He sounded and insane he did, yesterday and he morning. Still- yeah. Oh, and yesterday morning on Twitter was another story. Right? He had to get all that like pent up energy out somehow. Well, what you guys he- don't understand is white people. They get congratulated for being average. Is- and less than average. I, I mean, mean, he started off the speech speaking about Black History Month. He also... Um, Don't make me throw up. I'm sorry, but he also denounced the anti-Semitic attacks Don't that have been um, <laughs> happening across the country. I mean, that's how he started off. I, I mean, mean yeah. it was it was a Trump... I mean, are we supposed to praise him for doing the thing he should have been doing the whole time? Yeah, I, right, exactly. Well, it seems like we have a consensus here that, you know, we pretty much have the same reaction to the speech it was like okay you actually did your job well but the question you did your job period right you did your job the question that i'll throw out to the panel first is was it effective jackie i mean i think listen i still haven't watched it i'm gonna (laughs) i'm gonna be i'm gonna be upfront i've read a lot of analysis and commentary about the speech and i've read like um 
segments of his remarks, but I haven't watched the speech because I really, I just wanted to enjoy my weekend, guys. Like, I (laughs) I wanted to have fun. I didn't watch the speech when it aired, and the next morning, I was, like, in such a good mood when everybody else I was around was, like, really grumpy and feeling really, like, pent up and angry, so I I don't regret it. Um, Was it effective? I mean, I didn't watch it, so it wasn't for me. I don't think that he's going to be in a position where he's going to, like, influence anybody on the left at all, right? But that's not what, like, a modern-day president is really going to do. Um, I did read that the viewership for this was tremendous, which I'm sure he's very proud of himself for. Tremendous. Tremendous. It was, I think there were 16 million more viewers than Obama's first speech um, as president. So, was it effective? I, guess, I mean, people watched it. I mean, I think it is problematic to see that so much of the, you know, <laughs> mainstream media is saying, oh, well, he was very presidential. He wasn't off the cuff. He was this, that, and the other thing. And um, in a in an attempt to sort of normalize him, I think that he was effective in that way. But I don't know. You know, it's it's hard to gauge where what the media is saying versus what people are actually feeling like where is that middle ground so I don't know how effective it was but it certainly was at getting the media to take him more seriously well I'll give you my answer but before I do I want to know if you're listening right now and you want to tell us whether you thought Trump's speech was effective or not give us a call at 212-650-6903 or tweet us at beheard underscore radio you can also put a comment on Alyssa's Facebook live chat hey Alyssa's friends or on my Facebook live chat hey let your voice be heard and Whatever else, whatever, whatever other way we talk to people, yeah, it was effective. It made white people feel comfortable. It helped Republicans feel less guilty about selling their souls to the devil so they can get a whole bunch of conservative justices. And he didn't sound like he ate rat poisoning that morning. Was it a good speech? <laughs> no. Was it a substance speech? No. Did it have facts in it? No. Does it provide a vision for the country? Yes and no. Yes in the Very sense that like... specific vision. Yeah. Yes in that like it describes like... A, a warped vision made up by somebody who reads Breitbart's black crime section and only watches <laughs> AMC. But Is that a real thing? Yeah, it's, yeah, it is actually. But it's not an accurate vision of the world, nor does it pack, like, um, create an accurate vision for the country. Oh, well, thank you for that perspective. Alyssa, what stood out most to you during this speech? I mean, listen, I think, like, I'll agree with Jackie and Stanley on that. The fact that he was able to give a speech where he, you know, acted like an eight-year-old instead of a five-year-old, and everybody's giving him credit. I mean, and I, Stanley and I actually had a conversation about this earlier in the week, and I said, you know, I thought it was good that he stayed on the script. I mean, that was the most credit I was willing to give him, which is that he stayed on the script. But <laughs> He can uh, read, Yeah, is I, what we learned. He, he can read, and he knows how to repeat things on a teleprompter. I don't think, you know, I don't want that to get misconstrued as me giving him a lot of credit. It's not. It's just giving him the credit for what actually happened, which isn't that much. It's minimal. Um, that said, I do think that what he did in that speech was placate people in the Republican Party where that were concerned that he was unable to give that kind of speech or to stay on message. That said, the message only goes as far as you stay not crazy, as I will put it. So when you give this speech and you get people to say, hey, you know, he gave a speech that sounded like any other Republican president would have given, um, you know, which includes lies, myths, truths and policies that we disagree with. But I think we could have said the same thing had Mitt Romney given a speech, for example. Um, and then the very next day or, the you know, within two days after that, you then start going back. Somebody actually, you know, I don't know, Steve Bannon wasn't paying attention and somebody let him get back on his Twitter account. Um, and next thing you know, he's saying all these crazy things and then it detracts from this so-called 
decent speech that that was given and then re-raises all these questions that Republicans had about whether he's actually capable of doing this job. And I think that really you have to look at everything in context. And I really that that's sort of like a hindsight being 2020 thing, because that happened after the fact. But like, I can't help but look at it through that lens. Well, speaking of giving him credit and Stanley brought up a great point about, you know, was it affected effective in uh, gauging people? It, I think it went over a lot of people on the left. And one person was Van Jones. And we actually have a clip of Van Jones responding to what he said was one of an extraordinary moment in the speech. He became president of the United States in that moment, period. There are a lot of people who have a lot of reason to be frustrated with him, to be fearful of him, to be mad at him. But that was one of the most extraordinary moments you have ever seen in American politics, period. And he did something extraordinary. And for people who have been hoping that he would become unifying, hoping that he might find some way to become presidential, they should be happy with that moment. So what Van Jones was praising was the the part in the speech in which Donald Trump gave uh, credit to the Navy SEAL's widow. So the Navy SEAL that was killed in in an attack in Yemen under his watch, Um, his widow was there and he asked her to stand up. And then he also told the crowd that, you know, your, your husband is in heaven and he's looking down and he was a part of a mission that gave us so much intelligence. Um, that it's going to help us continue the fight in ISIS. And then he quoted his Secretary of Defense by saying, what, what this Navy SEAL did was a great job that helped us. That's what the Secretary of Defense said. But apparently, I think the CIA came out and yeah. other intelligence came so, out, so- and they said that what happened did not need to happen, and they did not gather a lot of intelligence. They didn't. They did not gather any intelligence. So what happened when there was a raid that President Obama and his administration had originally like set up? They did not go through with it because they felt like they didn't have enough intel, and they wanted to leave the decision up to Trump's administration to go through with it. Trump gave an okay for the administration for the raid, even though they didn't have enough information. The whole thing was botched. Trump wasn't even in the situation room when it happened, mm-hmm. and then he blamed. I think he was at dinner. Yeah. And then he blamed the generals for the guy's death about three hours before the State of the Union. Matt, Mattis did not say that. Trump lied. And the generals who were responsible also said there was zero intel taken. They had to blow up their own plane just so it wouldn't be seized by the enemy. And actually, if you know anything more about that, the f- the father of the person who was right. killed is actually calling for an investigation. He blames Donald Trump for taking this action and botching it essentially without having all the information and for moving forward with something too quickly. Uh, bef- you know, when he was told maybe don't go forward with this mission right now because there's more information we still need to get. Um, and as you pointed out, there are inconsistencies about whether or not the mission actually recovered any intelligence with many people people in the military coming out and saying it did not, while the president says that it did. So while you have him up there doing what any president would do, and I think that sort of speaks to Van Jones's point, is that every president has used military people sort of as props to say, here's your family, we're really sorry this happens, you're fighting for freedom, you're fighting for these good things. That's something that every president has done during these joint sessions of Congress. Obama's done it, George Bush did it, everybody's done it. So he's doing that, but he's not acknowledging the background of it. At least when Obama did it, it was like 
you know, we accomplished something versus I screwed the pooch on this and your husband got killed. And even his his father is calling for an investigation. Yet I have you here to poo poo the fact that, you know, we care about our military. On side note, there is so many policies that would affect the military negatively that are being proposed by the Trump administration. And so that's why it's really a dog and pony show. Yeah. But then on top of that, Van Jones is saying this is one of the most remarkable moments and and president what did he say that this is oh just i like- have the i have the exact quote he said this was one of the most extraordinary moments you have ever seen in american politics period what is extraordinary well, me, about this period so what you guys are missing here is the politics of this what trump did was brilliant trump is a walking piece of garbage <laughs> and what he just did was a show empathy b Take something that could have really been a crisis for him because the father was openly criticizing him and now make him look like the softer person. And then see, he pumped so many lies out about that same incident into one single space that you're gonna, it's, all the attention is going to be focusing on figuring out whether those were actual lies mm-hmm. or if it was the truth because a lot of it is ambiguous. And by the time you get through all that, no one in the public will care about this woman or the raid anymore because he would have waged war on the son or asked the Congress to look into Obama wiretapping his apartment. No, no. So that, and like politically wise, it's brilliant. He used her as a Trojan horse. And it's sad because this is a death. This is somebody who died. This is somebody who, you know, you're basically responsible for their death. And to play politics with that person's life is horrible. It's horrible. And I think that when we can see past it, you know, Stanley just did a great job explaining what's really going on here. Um, It really tells who Trump is as a person and you know, him as a leader. Not even Trump, his speechwriter. Trump is not smart enough to do this. Trump is an yeah. idiot by all accounts. I got, a, I got a text from someone listening to the show that I think sums it up perfectly. That said, you know, Trump just read a script. Like He didn't show anything. Like, Tom Hanks reads a script, right? Like that, And Tom Hanks does a much better job. But who Trump really is, is the guy that sits on the toilet at 5.30 a.m. And tw- sends out a bunch of tweets about you know BS. Yeah, Being that's that is who Trump is. He's not someone that is presidential and empathetic. He's someone that you know, it, in the middle of the night, probably sitting on the toilet, is tweeting out lies about you know. Yeah. He was trying to go to Obama. Bang. He was trying to go somewhere. He was on Breitbart. Yeah, he was looking for the the ebony section, and then. He found his article. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, and just to talk about policy, he wants to increase military spending. We spend more money on the military than anything else. And two-thirds of the budget are made up of the three big M's, military, uh, military Medicare, and Medicaid. If you cut out Mal- Medicare and Medicaid, the military is still the number one budget item. At the same time, he wants to do tax cuts. Well, you can't increase military spending and cut taxes at the same time. And I know we're going to get into a conversation about the budget, but it just goes to this thing about this using this military woman as a prop because even in that military spending that they want to do, they don't necessarily allocate money for the VA, which are the the VA is the arm of the government that helps veterans when they come home, when they get arms and legs blown off and stuff like that. So, you know, there's that. But just about what Jackie just said, he did not write this speech. Right. He did not write the speech. Mike Pence may have wrote the speech. Steve Bannon may have wrote the speech. Some speechwriter may have wrote the speech. If you think that Donald Trump actually wrote that speech, I have the Brooklyn Bridge to sell you because all Donald Trump, <laughs> Don, Donald Trump did was stand up there for an hour and read from a teleprompter. And the fact, as yeah. you pointed out, that he stayed reading the teleprompter and didn't go off on some crazy tangent is, okay, right. it was a miracle. But as Jackie says, who he really is is the guy who tweets at 6.30 in the morning about the 
President Obama tapping his phones when there's absolutely no evidence to show that actually happened. Right. So speaking of things that he says that didn't really happen, there were a number of mistruths, lies, half-truths. No, some, some things were just misleading, let's right? Let's call it lies and gaslighting. Let's not let's not do this mistruth, <laughs> not untrue. Uh, no. Okay, well, well we're so, not jig tapper here. Yeah. <laughs> I, no, I get what you're saying. So, like, one of the things that um, he, he talked about was the Affordable Care Act, and I quote, he said, Obamacare premiums nationwide have increased by double and triple digits. It's true, but it's not really true. And here's the reason why. According to the New York Times, and I'm quoting, double-digit increases in premiums are common. So basically, President Trump, uh, he cited uh, Arizona's 116% increase, and it is the only state that experienced a triple-digit hike. Premiums for a popular group of healthcare plans sold on healthcare.gov rose this year by an average of 25%, according to Obama administration. So when he says they're increasing by double and triple digits, when he says triple digit, he's, he was only referring to, again, what happened in Arizona. That was one of the things that he said. And, well, I will say, when it comes to the Affordable Care Act, we know that the Republicans have been on a campaign talking about they're going to repeal it and replace it. And then Donald Trump, while he was on the campaign, actually called for universal health care and promised to take care of us better than we have ever been taken care of. And then a few weeks ago, he goes back and he says, you know what? I didn't know health care was this hard. No one knew health care was this complicated. Okay, you know so now, did? but so now. And so now we have his address and he brings up Obamacare and he's just basically like bashing it and exaggerating it again. Oh, well, I was just saying, you know, you know who did know that yeah, health care was a that lot complicated? Of people knew. <laughs> a lot of people. But you know who really knew that health care was that complicated? Hillary Clinton. OK, <laughs> so the fact that he could get up there and with a straight face say that he didn't know how complicated it was when everybody else, myself, Jackie, Stanley, Selena, we're not even politicians. And yet we understand how complicated and how complex health care reform is. Hillary Clinton understand it just fine. You know, Barack Obama understood just fine how complicated doing health care was. You know who else understood it? Bernie Sanders understood yep. it. So for him to stand up there and say that, that's just a lie. And I'm so sick of people calling things alternative facts or misrepresentations or half-truths. Let's just start calling things what they are. They are lies. Yes, we have a liar for president. Now, guys, we do have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the problematic language Donald Trump said on that stage about undocumented immigrants. We also have a comment from someone who is watching us via Facebook Live, and we're going to talk about that in the wall right when we get back on Let Your Voice Be Heard. As we speak tonight, we are removing gang members, drug dealers, and criminals that threaten our communities and prey on our very innocent citizens. Bad ones are going out as I speak, and as I've promised throughout the campaign. To any in Congress who do not believe we should enforce our laws, I would ask you this one question. What would you say to the American family that loses their jobs their income, or their loved one, because America refused to uphold its laws and defend its borders. We are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. What you just heard was a clip from Garbage Donald Trump's <laughs> address to a joint session. The so-called so president. 
I'm sorry, Selena. I just think we should make it very clear that it's a whole garbage Trump talking to garbage white people on Uncle Tom's. So let me just um, give some context to that clip that was just played. That was, you know, he was uh, addressing Congress, millions of people watching, and he was demonizing undocumented immigrants. Um, later on in the speech, he said families of people killed by undocumented Im- immigrants have been, quote, Ignored by our media. At another point during this speech, he called out um, Jamil Shar Jr., who's um, well. He called out Jamil Shar Jamil Shar Sr. That was a father of a son who was killed by an undocumented immigrant. He asked him to stand up, and he talked about the story. And this was a black man who lost his son. And basically, the whole time, I'm thinking like he's really painting undocumented immigrants like they're the biggest criminals. In our country, and the facts show that is absolutely not true. In fact, undocumented immigrants, um, they actually produce the least amount of crime compared to Americans. And border cities, like border cities in our nation, have the least amount of crime as well. So the facts don't support it. He's up there painting them as if they're just, like, committing all these crimes and killing all these people. Like white people. And the facts (laughs) don't support the fact that immigrants are taking our jobs either, as we discussed last week. Because they're not. um, Because they're not. Yeah, thank you, Jackie. As we discussed last week, when immigrants come here and they take the low-skilled jobs that Americans don't want to do, that actually frees up sometimes Americans to go do jobs that they do want to do. sometimes helps other Americans to start their own businesses. And as David Brooks, who I don't always agree with, wrote, it helps to increase the stream downriver, meaning that when the stream flows well at the top of the river, it flows all the way down the river and you end up with economic growth from the top to the bottom. And so the idea that immigrants are stealing Americans' jobs and driving down wages has also been untrue. So you have these two untruths, this idea that immigrants commit crimes at a higher rate, which is untrue, and this idea that immigrants, right, have stolen jobs, which is also a lie. And so you couple those two things together and you know that he's saying those in order to gain support for this wall that he wants to build, which, by the way, is not fiscally conservative, will blow out our budget and, you know, will cost us money that we don't have. Republicans spent eight years talking about the debt, the debt, the debt, the deficit, the debt. Oh, my God, Obama and the debt. And meanwhile, Obama actually reduced the deficit. And because the deficit went down, the debt, although the debt was still going up a little because debts and deficits are different, there was at least starting to be some reduction. Um, now, now we could obviously debate whether or not that was good or bad. That's a separate conversation. But now you, like I pointed out before, when you want to do all these things, infrastructure, a wall, increased military spending, those things cost money. And so when you also want to cut taxes, then you don't have revenue coming in to pay for those things. And when you don't have revenue coming in, but you have revenue going out, what ends up happening is the deficit goes up. And when the deficit goes up, the debt goes up too. So you have all these lofty proposals, but they don't mean anything if you have no way to pay for them. And you can't have a way to pay for them if you're going to cut taxes while also proposing a trillion dollar spending plan. It just doesn't work. Ask any economist. They'll tell you it doesn't work. Well, they're going to cut taxes on the back of poor people because that's the way that the super rich and the corporate elite like to play this game. They want to keep on making more money than they've ever made. And the only way they can stay see to do that is to attack the poor. It's a very simple strategy. I just want to take a quick step back on the immigration topic. First of all, I want to say, so we've been having a lot of conversations about undocumented people coming in here and not being like afraid of doing something like this low-level work. I want to be clear. First of all, undocumented people, that's not the only thing they do here. They don't come here and just do low-level work. We have astrophysicists here. We have doctors we have scholars i want to say that also 
Immigration from Mexico to America is at a net zero. It's Eastern Europeans. I don't see anyone going to knock on doors of of, of moxie. So someone go talk about well, that. Well, I just wanted to add to that and correct. Like, so most of the people who are coming here that are the skilled workers that you just pointed out are actually coming on visas. It's still immigration, but they're usually not coming here um, crossing the border illegally. That said, some of them do overstay their visas, which then makes them undocumented. On top of Eastern Europeans, there's also a large number of Asian immigrants coming from China, and they often get overlooked. In fact, we sort of touched upon this last week, and you should check out that show. It's on our podcast if you haven't heard it, which is there was a raid somewhere, I think it was in Missouri, and they went and raided an Asian restaurant, and they were looking for undocumented Asians. So often what gets overlooked in the conversation about immigration is the fact that uh, a large number of people that are here um, that are undocumented actually come from China, and in some cases came here legally to begin with and then overstayed their visas, or um, have come from China and yet been smuggled through Mexico just because of the ways in which people get over our southern border. So those are interesting factors that we should consider. Um, but I think you're right. Not every immigrant that's here does a low-skilled job. The fact of the matter is, though, no matter what job they're doing, in the majority of those people are not taking jobs from Americans. I just want to point out one more fact. Did we get a comment? Yeah, just want to... Oh, um, okay, yes, go ahead. From, um, Hi, Jamaica. Quali Black said, report undocumented immigrants and watch the American agriculture industry implode. He's right. They tried to restrict how much undocumented people you could bring into certain states like Alabama and, and Missouri and the agriculture, the farmers started complaining to elected officials because they couldn't get enough people to help them. No, you're absolutely right. And, and before we move on, I want to make this last point about what Trump said about immigration in our country. We played the clip in which he said, and I quote, we are removing gang members, drug dealers and criminals, end quote. Well, according to the facts, and again, I'm quoting the New York Times, that's actually not what's happening. There has has not been a big change under the Trump administration. We remember that President Obama was quote unquote deporter in chief and he ordered the Department of Homeland Security to make serious criminals a primary focus of his deportation efforts. So under the Obama administration, we were actually deporting um, um, criminals as well as uh, as well as breaking up families. Well, serious, like serious, serious kim- criminals. Right. Well, I was just going to say that. I mean, the Obama administration was not prioritizing people that jumped a turnstile, right. even though that is technically a deportable offense, despite what the NYPD may have come out and said this week and despite what Mayor de Blasio falsely believes. Um, but the fact of the matter is the Obama administration was prioritizing deporting criminals, but they were prioritizing deporting criminals that had committed violent criminal offenses, that had um, served long jail sentences. They were not looking to deport people who merely jumped a turnstile or stole a tube of toothpaste from Dwayne Reed or or, you know, Scott caught smoking marijuana in Central Park. Those were not the people that Obama was looking to deport. In addition, the Obama administration protected DACA and DAPA recipients, with which the Trump administration is not doing. Deferred and action, number or... three, the Obama administration was not going after people who merely got arrested but then had their cases dismissed. Whereas now the Trump administration is saying any contact with the criminal justice system, even if your case was ultimately dismissed because you were innocent and you did absolutely nothing wrong, could potentially put you at risk for deportation. All of this, again, goes back to xenophobia. Let's just be honest to call this what it is. It's like when I said last week, if somebody's a Nazi, call them a Nazi. Well, when somebody's xenophobic,
xenophobic, call them xenophobic. And all of these things are coming from places of fear. He is drumming up fear because fear sells and fear is what keeps his base paying attention. That's very true. So I did want to just shift gears because another thing that Donald Trump said, he said that the Keystone and Dakota Access Pipelines will create, and I quote, tens of thousands of jobs. Lies. Well, Jackie. They will Right. For a very short amount of time. And then those jobs are done. And then what? Right. And then who is profiting off of the oil that's being transported through these pipelines? Right. At the end of the day, even if these even if these projects do create jobs, they're only short term jobs. Right. And then what? Yeah. And well, also, it only created about 23 permanent jobs. According, well, that's according to um the um, Federal Bureau. The New York Times has, well, they have it. They said that Keystone would create about 35 permanent jobs. Oh, okay. So, again, so, so much better. <laughs> right. No, no, no. So it's like he's he's making these like these big statements, these big ag- exaggerations to basically try to make himself look good. But it's like he's literally lying through his teeth. And, you know, my question is, how in the world is he being received so well? I have a very simple answer for you. Donald Trump and his racist administration is pitting poor people against poor people. So poor white people against poor black people, poor undocumented people, poor LGBTQ people, and making them fight so that the rich can continue to get richer. The Keystone Pipeline only creates 35 permanent jobs in, in, in like the three, I think the four different states is going to go through and meanwhile you have somebody who's at home right now who can't pay their rent who is on disability or on, on welfare and they think that a black guy or a Mexican person wants to destroy their worlds and that's because Donald Trump is pushing a racist agenda and that's from a capitalistic society that uses racism and sexism to pit people against each other so they can make money. I mean, and I just want to add to that. You know that the majority of people who get food stamps and public assistance in this country are actually poor white people. Yep. The number people who, in a large part, probably voted for Donald Trump. These people in the Rust Belt that we talk about all the time, the people who did not come. And I don't want to go through a rehashing of the why Hillary Clinton lost. We've done that before. Go back and listen to one of our other shows. We've discussed that issue at length, and we've had some great discussions on it at that. But these Rust Belt voters that we're constantly talking about, these people th- that have become poor because manufacturing jobs dried up, because coal jobs dried up, because a lot of the jobs that used to exist don't exist anymore. Those are the people that are suffering. Those are the people that in a lot of cases are on food stamps. And as Stanley points out, when you convince the poorest white man that he is higher on the totem pole than a poor black man, then you create this situation where he will vote for what you want. And so that's why you have all these poor white people from the middle of nowhere flyover country that go out and vote for Donald Trump, which is voting against their interests. And, you know, listen, there was an article published in Slate last week about Obamacare that said the people that would lose the most, they have the most to lose from this new Republican plan to replace Obamacare are Trump's voters. I would would respectfully disagree with that just very quickly because one of the biggest beneficiaries of the Affordable Care Act has been Latino people. They went from having about 22% of their population covered with insurance to about 47 after the Affordable Care Act passed. And I think it's not really a disagreement. It's so much as it's we're quoting different facts, which is they say this new Republican plan Uh, would impact these poor white people the most. Now, I think your point is that this new plan would also impact the people the most who have benefited the most. But I think that's sort of the flip side. And it'll hurt like more white people because there's right. more white people in the state. I got you. Exactly. Guys, if you do want to chime into the conversation, feel free to give us a call at 212-650-6903. And so speaking of poverty, um, he said something else about that. Donald Trump said during this speech, and I quote, 
over 43 million people are now living in poverty. So when he says that number, according to the Census Bureau, 43.1 million people are living below the federal poverty line, but that number is lower than it was in the depths of the recession back in 2009 and 2010. So again, he takes things that are like true and then he's twist it to make himself look so good and I want to point it out that by him continuing to exaggerate by him continuing to bash the Affordable Care Act and to say that you know we live in a country that's filled and rigged with crime and all these undocumented people are coming here and killing people what he's actually doing is he's painting a very dark picture of the United States and in four years from now when he just refers back to the facts and which say that things are actually getting better he can start to take credit so I think that this is is also a political strategy that is going to help him in the long run but we need to be cognizant of calling it out because we can definitely get lost in this little trap he's creating i mean he's just doing what any republican president would be doing right like that's any any republican president would state facts this way um and so i guess that's why he's gotten the positive response that he's gotten for the speech is that he's doing things in a way that are typical to the establishment and the and and framing things and putting them in a package together in the way that the establishment usually does so if that i mean if we're normalizing that right that used to be something that the left would look at as like egregious in and of itself and now if we're taking it from it just it it makes the point that because he's doing things in the way that we expect them to be done, now we're like, oh, my God, he's so presidential. He's so, you know, he's he's so much better than where he was. And all he's doing is taking um, strategy points from the right that they've already put into place, right, to, to frame facts like that and say, look at this issue, even though we know that it, things are getting much better. I mean, that's not so unique to him. I think that's something that candidates and presidents have done for forever but you know the the response has been a little disproportionate to what he's done so you know we have to wrap things up but before we do last question everyone gets about 30 seconds to answer i'll start with you stanley so we know that trump lies through his teeth we know that he lies on twitter he lied to the what 50 million people that were watching his address um what's the call to action here what what can we do what should we be doing when we have a narcissistic liar as president Resist. So, as much as it sucks to hear, but the only way we're going to get out of this and through this is by working with work poor and working class white people that voted for Trump and poor Uncle Tom black people that voted for Trump and just all poor and working class people need to come together and fight for our own survival. Because as much as I dislike 99.1% of Trump voters, I'm stuck with them. So we have to find a way to live here together or we're going to die. <laughs> It really is what a way to end, Stanley. It, it really is that simple. And also, Trump supporters go to hell. I'll, I'll, I'll curse them out the whole time I'm trying, to, I'm trying to help them, but I will curse them out. And I still oh. have plenty of words for them. Well, you know what? That's a shift in thinking for you, Stanley. Um, Jackie, 30 seconds. What do we do? Like, what? how do we? I mean, you stay educated, right? You question everything. Question everything coming out of that man's mouth, out of that administration's mouths. Um, I think you should fact check everything. I mean, like you said, there are facts that seem reasonable or seem, you know, sort of like, oh, okay, this is a problem. But then when you really look at it and you discover otherwise, like that's what we need to be doing. We need to be checking everything, checking sources and, you know, staying educated. 
I mean, yeah, I would agree with all that. I'll also say context, it really matters. Like, that's one of the most important things is that, you know, when you are fact-checking something, you can't just fact-check it in the abstract. You have to fact-check it in terms of context. And the only other thing I'll add is not just you know, pay attention and fact check, but like, and resist. Resisting also includes calling out the lies, but also doing positive things, getting together, helping your fellow man, um, you know, protecting uh, undocumented immigrants and uh, speaking out against racism and xenophobia and transphobia and homophobia and all of those things while you are calling out the lies. So, you know, that's the thing that I think I should focus on, which is the most is we have to come together both on the economic front but also in protection of the people that we care about, both in our neighborhoods, in our communities, and across the country generally. Right. And I will just leave everyone by saying this. We know who President Trump is. He has shown us time and time again. He's been like this for decades. He's been xenophobic or racist, narcissistic, and a liar. But it is our job to keep resisting, make sure we fact check, and to hold the president accountable. Now, how do we do that? For instance, he keeps promising that we're going to have better health care everyone's going to be everyone's going to be covered and the affordable care act was a disaster he even bashed it during the speech well you know what show us i am watching and i am counting down the days to when he will magically replace obamacare with something that's going to cover us all it's probably not going to happen but we can't let stuff like this slide we can't let what he says just go over like okay he's just being trump he's just tweeting no we need to hold him accountable at every turn that we can because he's going to continue it but that means that we just need to be even more on top of it and even more educated even more informed so that we do not get just lost in the sauce on that note we do have to take a quick break but don't go anywhere when we come back we're jumping into some of the juiciest news stories of the week right here on let your voice be heard Hey guys, we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, The Voice of Harlem. If you are just tuning in, this is Stanley Fritz, the handsomest man between my knee and my shoulder. And I'm also here with Selena Hill, Alyssa Fuchs, and Jackie Cohen. If you have just tuned in, we are talking about Donald Trump's speech, or we were talking about Donald Trump's speech to a joint session of Congress and Senate, where he gave 53 lies in 61 minutes. <laughs> he looked more orange than ever before, and then liberals and pundits fell over themselves to pretty much praise a man that is called that wasn't called. Two Truths and 50 Lies. Is that a new game we're playing? That would have been a good headline. Where was yeah. it on Thursday night, Alyssa? Yeah, Alyssa, uh, come on. Well, guys, we are now on to the news roundup where we talk about our favorite news stories that happened throughout the week. And I am talking to you, Alyssa's friends on Facebook Live, and you, Stanley's friends on Facebook Live, and Jackie and Selena, too. If you have any good news stories, things that made you laugh, cry, curse, hit the dab, bust a nene, or even trip over yourself, this is the time to share them. And Jackie, angry liberal feminist killjoy yes. has some news. Okay, so I have a little story about my Sunday night last night, or last week. So um, this year I saw Moonlight. It was my favorite movie of the year. I thought it was a masterpiece. The I loved agenda. it. I got, to, <laughs> I got to see Barry Jenkins speak about it. I got to watch his first feature film, which was not as good as Moonlight. Um, but Moonlight was spectacular, and I was so hoping that it would win the Oscar, but I, I had a feeling it wasn't going to happen. I thought maybe Barry Jenkins would win for Best Director, but that it wasn't going to win. So I didn't watch the Oscars. I was out at a show, and then um, you know I couldn't stream it at home, so I figured I'd stay up on my phone on Twitter to see who won the best Oscar, and then I'd, I'd go to bed. And I was half asleep. So I'm lying in bed. I'm half asleep. I'm just waiting for the best picture to be announced. 
And I see it's La La Land, and I'm like, screw this, good night. And I put my phone down, and I go to bed thinking that La La Land won. White rage. And then in the middle of the night, my boyfriend, Ben, who I live with, comes to bed, and he wakes me up. And anybody that he knows- woke you up? Anybody that knows me That's knows that when you wake play. me up when I'm deep in sleep, I am like an evil, like- evil person i am not nice at all and i i can't i have no control over it but i'm like a nasty human being um and so so ben wakes me up and he kind of whispers in my ear jackie moonlight won best picture and he knew how hopeful i was and i got (laughs) so mad at him and i was like stop trying to joke with me like i'm asleep why are you waking me up i saw that la la lamb won and he was like no and he's cracking up he's like no they gave the wrong Oscar out. <laughs> Moonlight won. And I'm like, this doesn't make sense. Like, what's wrong with you? I'm trying to go to bed. I got an early morning on Monday. Like, shut up. <laughs> and he's like, no, no. Like, check your phone. And I look at my phone. And I see a New York Times uh, pu- push notification that says that the wrong Oscar was handed out yep. to La La Land. And that really Moonlight won the yep. Oscar for Best Picture. Marilyn and I watched that live. And I thought I was high. We weren't even I, smoking anything. I can't we were just sitting even. There. Like, it was unreal i watched it too first of all i was upset because like la la land was like winning everything as predicted and then when that happened i was just like and then they were like hold on we got it wrong and i was just like what and then jimmy kimmel was like yes i blame steve harvey and i was like is this really happening (laughs) they got it wrong and then stanley tweeted because i was up stanley tweeted that someone's gonna get fired and someone's gonna get the the, the expletive fired out of them and that the ghost of steve harvey lives you know what it really it kind of upsets me at the end of the day like i i know a lot of people were like it's great that this like film got to come on stage and like grab the oscar out of la la land's hands which is kind of funny but at the end of the day i think that moonlight was robbed of their moment i think that they should have had that amazing moment where they just got to go on stage like no like guilt or no you know no weird feelings and just accept it and revel in the fact that they had the best movie of the year which i agree i think that they totally should have won you know, I wasn't a huge fan of Moonlight. I liked it, but I didn't really? think it was Oscar worthy. Yeah, it was a coming of age story. It was good, but I'm like, it wasn't like, oh my goodness, this has to win. Marilyn saw La La Land and really liked it and thought that they should have won. Really? Yeah. Alyssa and I talked about this, and we we both agreed that it just felt weird to have a movie about jazz with no black people in it. Yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, then that's how it's like. It's like it was like a a two hour episode of Friends. But you know, <laughs> hey, listen. So anyway, speaking of people who should be fired, <laughs> since you said that somebody oh, has to get fired, our boy. How about our boy Jeff Sessions, who apparently got so excited to do racism, yeah, <laughs> that he that he did a dang perjury, yeah. according <laughs> to a great tweet slash meme that I saw this week. Uh, so what am I talking about? What I am talking about is the fact that there is information that has come out this week that says Jeff Sessions, who is the attorney general, may have lied under oath to Congress about having contacts with the Russian government. During his confirmation hearings, he was asked by Senator Al Franken whether or not he had had any contacts with any Russian officials during the campaign. He said, no, I did not. And then it turns out that now it has come to light that he met with the Russian ambassador twice during the campaign. Of course, he says that he was not lying under oath or committing perjury because what he 
really meant was that he had met with the Russian ambassador as a senator, as a member of the Senate Armed Forces Committee, but not as a Trump surrogate. He could Even have though it was while he was actively campaigning for, for, Donald, for Trump. Donald Trump. Now, he could have said to Congress <sighs> that, you know, he didn't have any contacts with the Russians as a Trump surrogate, but that he had contact with the Russian ambassador as a senator. But he did not say that. He said, I did not have any contacts with the Russians. This, of course, is creating a big problem because, one, it raises suspicions that the reason he may have lied under oath is because he has something to hide. Mm-hmm. In addition, the other problem is, if you remember back when Bill Clinton was in the process mm-hmm. of being impeached for lying about whether or not he received sexual relations, he was actually disbarred. And Jeff Sessions, there's a clip of Jeff Sessions from, I believe it's 1995, saying how serious it was for Bill Clinton to have <laughs> lied under oath to Congress and committed perjury. So this, of course, creates a major problem. Jeff Sessions has now said he's going to recuse himself from any investigations in Russia, but Democrats, including myself, are calling for his resignation. And honestly, I think this just shows one more thing as to why there's so many issues with Trump and with the Russians that may lead to, or in theory, should lead to Trump's impeachment. I know Stanley's really anxious to chime in. The question that I want to pose is... Could this be the end of Jeff Sessions? Do you think that no. he... You, so you think that even though this happened, he's going to continue in the job? Despite everything that has happened over the last two years, you still underestimate whiteness. Whiteness does not require you to be accountable. It does not require you to be truthful. It does not require you to be a good person. It just requires you to be white and have privilege. And if you have money, you have even more privilege and less reason to be accountable or honest. Jeff Sessions is a racist, white supremacist with money and power. He has to do nothing but be white. Well, I mean, I I sort of get where you're coming from, but I think it's less so much of that and more so much of his privilege of power in that he has such a high-level position and also because Republicans have no spines, right? I mean, that's really what's going on, which is there are maybe one or two Republicans out of 500 Republicans that are actually coming out and saying this is a problem. And then it obviously turns into an even bigger problem when Donald Trump goes on Twitter yesterday morning and decides to start tweeting that the Obama administration was Tapping his phones oh, yeah. or something crazy, which, by the way, leads to only one conclusion. Either A, he's lying and he's making these things up with actually no evidence to prove it. Or B, if it is true, it means that a federal judge, a foreign a FISA court judge, actually looked into it and found that there was some credible evidence that Donald Trump was doing something shady with the Russians and actually issued a wiretap based on probable cause that there yep. was actually a reason to believe Donald Trump committed a crime. So either way, this is going to go bad for him and Jeff Sessions is caught up in all of this so I mean we'll see I mean we're calling for his resignation Um, we'll see if he can sustain or if not guys if you want to chime into the conversation you can call us up at 212-650-6903 you can also tweet us at beheard underscore radio Uh, another story that I thought was just as bizarre you guys may disagree with me okay before I get to that story I do want to let we have a call on the line Miss Deborah okay well let Miss Deborah chime in first hi Miss Deborah how you doing we're pretty good good morning look I'm tired of you with these intellectual powwows Sessions is just a liar and his whiteness will prevail okay that's I mean, Martin Luther King said it so, he was so great when he said, when when the white man cannot feed his family, he will feed him Jim Crow. And these people are feeding them Jim Crow, and they are drinking the Kool-Aid. 
I have never seen a country feed off of these people the way they do. It, 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 it is, it, and it's scary. It's almost as if these people are not, it's almost as if the American people are no longer human anymore. All he has to do is say it, and they go along with it. Thank you so much for that, Ms. Deborah. I think you are, and I are almost on the same page. Yeah, all he has to do is keep on being white, and these people eat it all up. And I think a big reason is of why they eat it all up is because, A, the people who should be holding him accountable, like Alyssa mentioned, don't have spines. And then, B, his whiteness. Because if that had been a Ben Carson, they would have dragged that black Uncle Tom out of here already. I don't know. Well, ben Carson said some pretty bad things, and they're not dragging him out. Yeah, but he's not communicating with Russia. I he's think just a stupid it's more about party affiliation and them wanting not to hurt their own people within the Republican Party. I mean, we can no. agree to disagree about that. Obviously, I do think white privilege comes into play, so I'm not discounting that from the conversation. But I think if we focus so much on the color of his skin instead of on the fact that there's this party loyalty within the GOP, I mean, look, Flynn was white, and Flynn went. So and was also that- a racist. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I hate to cut you off, but like... We, there is no way we can ever remove the frame of racism and sexism from any of these conversations. But we're not removing because, it. It's just on, like no, no. you can't just these, focus on that one but thing that, as that being is the, the reason. Like, but Jeff it's Sessions, not the only reason. Party unity is, has a lot to do with no, it. No, racism and the supporting of racism is the main thing because Jeff Sessions, who's an open racist, who the wife of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. came out and said was a racist and was problematic, uh-huh. was confirmed despite all of this. Despite that, which is supposed to be America's greatest sin, he was confirmed despite that. So him talking to some other white folk in Russia is not going to change anything. As a white man who already benefits from privilege and the institutions of racism, he is protected. He does not have to be accountable. So but yes, I think we agree Ru- on that. So so yes, like I'm saying, like Russia is not a situation of racism, but his privilege as a white man makes him go scotch free. Because if the Ob- if this happened to the Obama administration, even Democrats would have been calling for someone's head. Because you know why whiteness protects you from everything else. Well, I think that also, I mean, like I, like I said, I agree with that, but I think it also speaks to the fact that, well, what you just said, Democrats were willing to go after their own party if something went wrong, whereas Republicans just aren't. Like, they have no spine because they just want to protect their own, which is Democrats are more likely to go after their own, whereas Republicans are not. So, you know, both of these things can work in conjunction. It's not an either-or conversation. Right, so um, we are going to just take a time, move on. Um, I did have another bizarre crazy story that I want to share with you guys. It may not be as crazy to you guys as it is to me. So apparently, um, we all know that Joe Biden's son, oh, Bu, died of oh. cancer. Oh. Bo, excuse me, Bo died of cancer a few years ago. Now it appears his widow is dating his younger brother, Hunter, what? who was Damn, still married. Hunter's still married, but he is separated from his wife. And apparently, Joe Biden has gave his, and I quote, full and complete support. So when I heard this story, I'm just like, the only other time I heard of a of two of a brother dying and then that brother who is alive taking care of his um, brother's family is like in the Bible and like biblical okay. days. But then like some of my co-workers at Black Enterprise were like, no, they used to do this in the 50s during World War Two. Like this is normal. So I was like, hold on, this hold on. Is, not normal. is this normal? No. Wait, where was I <laughs> when this like Jackie, Jackie the biggest news story of the week? <laughs> I don't even know where I was running around Albany 
know, so I guess that's what I, where was I when this story broke? Because I promise you, I would have been screaming they're, about this all week. They're having sex, okay? <gasps> Joe, is that normal, Stanley? What's well, so when a man and a woman love each other, right? <laughs> oh, oh, oh. That's what they do. <laughs> yeah, so, Wait, we have to get you the pamphlet on how that works. Yeah, right? We'll do that later. So mommy's busting it wide open. I am so... Says. I need to leave. So I'm let me get this <laughs> straight. Joe Biden's son that died of brain cancer. Yes. Wife. Is having sex with Hunter. Hunter, his Her, little his brother. Twenty second time out. If there was ever a definition of white names, Hunter would be the first name to pop up. <laughs> That's one. Two. Hunter was like, "Your brother's dead. I might as well shoot my shot." No. Pulled up from forty, and it went in all net. No. You know what? I'm not even mad. Well, apparently, what you miss one hundred percent of the shots you don't take. <laughs> Psalms 27. No, no, apparently the Biden family said that they came together because they were both grieving. That's good they're coming together. They <laughs> Stop it. They both more ways than one. They both came together to mm-hmm. console one another. Oh, uh, yeah, that's oh, what happened. They were consoling, all right? Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry to my parents who are definitely... Bust it open. Bust it open. I didn't know people did that. Did he slide on her DMs? Was he like, he, it was like 2 in the morning. He was like, what are you doing? <laughs> I hope not, Stanley. You said, mm. I'm sad. Oh. You want to come over? <laughs> no. He's like, want to watch 13 on Netflix? Oh, no. I mean, I don't have... <laughs> no. I mean, p- for people with siblings, could you see yourself being with... In this situation? No. <laughs> I mean, well, that I doesn't mean, work I'm, for me because my sister's straight and I am not. So we would never be in that position. I'm just about by definition, to vomit, but, literally. Um, no, that's just weird. But I mean, like, I get it, but it's weird. Jackie. It's weird. Oh, God. I... I, need, I don't know. Well, <laughs> I, 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 I'm very, <laughs> very rarely am I at a loss for words, as you all know, but I am truly at a loss for, of words right now. Well, listen, I mean, they're not related, technically. Well, at least they're keeping it in the family. I mean, Just wait, to wait, move on. Isn't this a <laughs> biblical marriage or something? Doesn't the Bible say yes, something about this? The Bible says that, like, if you're, if, uh, like, um... Your son dies at war. Right, right. If the husband and you have a brother, next of kin takes care of the family. The Bible also says you're not supposed to eat shellfish and like. That was the only time. I didn't know people actually followed this. Selena just explained in 30 seconds why Stanley Fritz is an atheist. Stanley, (laughs) this is why this is why we have so many people that apparently don't like gay people because of the Bible or something, but don't follow anything else in the Bible. You're supposed to have sex with your brother's wife, but apparently God has a problem with. No, but basically, it's just saying that you should take care of that person's family. Before we walk away from this, I do want to talk about one thing, not having sex with your, your, your brother's wife. The other thing is, so apparently a lot of people, white, are upset about Beauty and the Beast, white people, because <laughs> oh, there's yeah. a gay couple in there. Now, so they're okay with the bestiality portion of this movie. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Stanley. A woman falling in love with a bison. Stanley, That's you are a, digging very deep. Am I? It's a bison. <laughs> He's a bison. That's what he is the whole movie. And then she, he dies and she kisses him. Spoiler alert. The movie came out more than 20 years ago. I'm sorry, not sorry. This is not a new movie. Yeah. And she kisses the dead bison. So now you're kissing dead things. And it transforms a into okay. a white man. No, okay. no. That's the wrong movie. Yeah. Wrong, wrong Disney yeah. movie. I'm, I'm, I'm mixing it. Yeah, and by the way, movies. Lion King, incest. Because because Scar's daughter was Nala, well, who was Simba's wife. In in the movie Little Mermaid, doesn't it say boobs in the clouds? Well, that's awesome. Who doesn't oh, we boobs? can get into some real Disney And in Pinocchio, all the child molestation, right now. I'm looking for bad boys. <laughs> oh, no, no. Now I'm mixing matching movies again. This, the word sex in the clouds is um, in Lion King. And in Little Mermaid, there's some other dildos. sexual innuendo reference. Everyone has dildos. But yeah, so I mean, Selena hates us right now. So two men kissing, no problem. Woman possibly having sex with bison, 
Jesus would, would want this. Right. Well, it's not just white people that were upset. Who else? <laughs> it was. I think it was people of other races as well. Like, like who? Name them. I don't know. Slightly. <laughs> black people are too busy watching Get Out. We're not worried about this. Not, so not you don't think black people Christians. were upset about this? I mean, they no. Even know. I, like, listen, there are a lot of Christians on the right um, that span all races, black, white, Hispanic, Many, many races that They're are right. anti-gay. I say this in jest, obviously. Like, you know that this is true. Yes, homophobia is How not one of How many times have we gotten a call from somebody who is not white, who has something very homophobic Oh, the black guy that called here and called me an effing F-word. But what you call it? Yeah, homophobia is not just a white thing. It is a stupid people thing. But Thank you. Thank you for clarifying. No so, problem. last but not least. We're not going to end off with the brother sex? No. There oh was God. No, we have to talk about how Kellyanne Conway was kneeling on couches... And the White House this week. So wait, that I'm sorry, guys. That is a white people thing because in a <laughs> black household, you will get hit. I bet you the bottom of her feet were black too. You don't put your feet on somebody right. else's couch. That's no. not your house. No. But like, so a lot of I people. Mean, but that is her house now because oh. she runs Donald Trump. Mm, touche. But was touche. the picture a big deal? Like she was in a room full. I think all of the HBCU presidents. Yeah. Then you had Donald Trump in the middle. I'm just petty. Call me Petty Pablo. So, so basically, was Black Twitter just being petty about this? Well, yes and no because yes because like who cares? But no because <laughs> go to somebody, go to a black woman's house and put your feet up on her couch. You know, I just think this is a big distraction from all the other things that are going on. And I like like, like Burger King bought Popeyes. Yeah. Well, no. <laughs> about, like, big think thing about going the on. legislation that has been introduced this week. You have these religious freedom bills that are being introduced. You have in states these anti-protest bills that are being introduced. There's a bill to repeal Obamacare, although Rand Paul's been running around the Capitol building trying to find an actual copy of the bill and has not been able to, which has been a whole separate news story of Rand Paul playing Find the Bill all week. Right. Um, but you have all these egregious things that are happening. Crackdowns on Muslims, crackdowns on immigrants, uh, ICE raids, uh, all these pieces of legislation that are being proposed. And what are people focusing on? They're focusing on a picture of Kellyanne Conway kneeling on a couch at the HBCU meeting. And they're not focusing on the other issues regarding HBCUs, which we're going to talk about in the next segment coming up in just a minute or two. So I think like, yeah, it's disrespectful for her to be sitting on the couch like that. But at the end of the day, if you stay focused on this, you're being distracted from the really important things that are actually going on stay focused on the important stuff like hunter and his new bay <laughs> this song is dedicated to him by the way between the sheets and the family We are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, the voice of Harlem. If you are wondering who this is, this is Stanley Fritz, the most handsomest man speaking at this very moment in this very room at this very time. I can't account for anyone else in this world because I don't really talk about them. I am also here with Selena Hill, who Snapchats herself sleeping and would Snapchat herself using the bathroom if she could figure out how to do it and flush the toilet at the same time. That's so nasty, and that is not true. I am also here with Alyssa Fuchs. Is she the culprit for flooding the bathroom? (laughs) Yeah. So We've been having a bathroom fiasco at WATR. If you want to help us keep the toilets working over here, please donate money to Let Your Voice Be Heard Radio. <laughs> yes. That's what you should do That's on our GoFundMe. Yeah, you should definitely <laughs> fund us on our GoFundMe page. <laughs> So we can pay for the good toilet paper that doesn't clog up yes, the toilet. Please. You hear that, Professor Harden? I want three ply toilet paper. If I see one ply, I am burning that bathroom. I am down. out. 
but but seriously, we should be promoting our. We're launching a, or we have launched a fundraising page, and if yep. you like what we're doing here, you should definitely. Throw down a couple bucks. Every dollar matters. Um, you can check us out at, Gofu- at our GoFundMe page. Um, and there's a link on our Facebook page and on our website. You can check it out there. And, and even if you're a hater, you should still donate money to us so that we can stay on the air so you can he- so keep you can hating hate on us. Listen to us, yes. <laughs> exactly. And remember, every, every dollar you donate goes towards my whiskey addiction. No, right? that is untrue. It goes towards station fees. It goes towards lots of things that we do like to whiskey. make our show It goes towards our, us being able to apply for awards, yeah. including a press club award, which, which we, we won, won last year. Back to back, maybe And then guys? we had creme brulee and Stanley didn't know what it was. Well, sorry that I grew up poor, guys. <laughs> My bad. Yeah, Alyssa. <laughs> the one time that you had the opportunity to make a good white joke and you botch it. I feel like I've been white heavy today. I want to like r- like move away from the mayonnaise like a little bit and get to the hot sauce of Hennessy. <laughs> so, you know, we can just keep cool, this cool. thing going. But speaking of hot sauce of Hennessy, I do want to shift gears a little bit, guys. So we are going to be talking about HBCUs. Historically black colleges and universities. And if you guys remember, I told you at the beginning of the show that I am horse, which you can obviously tell. And I told you I was... You're a horse? I am definitely... I'm a horse, of course. Mm. Yes. But also my (laughs) voice is horse. I'm losing my voice. And I will tell you how that happened. So pretty much yesterday morning, I got up at 7 a.m. I left my bed with my beautiful girlfriend who was not going to be getting up to say goodbye to me. So I had to walk out on my own and go down to 59th Street Columbus Circle to join thousands of parents, students, and teachers. And we were juxtaposed between Trump Towers on our left-hand side, on our right-hand side was high-rise condominiums, where the rent costs more than what some people make in a year. I'm looking at you, East New York, South Bronx, Harlem, East Harlem, Queens. A lot of families don't even make $30,000 a year, and some people are paying that much just for their rent for these condos and mortgages. And then where we stood, where we stood was amazing because... It was the entrance. It is the entrance of Central Park, but before that, it was a town called Seneca Town, and it was a black community in that area. And what happened was to build Central Park, they pretty much just erased the entire black town. When you say race, I don't mean they came in with a pencil eraser and just marked it off. I mean they destroyed their homes, they kicked them out by force, they attacked, they bludgeoned, they killed, they disrespected, and just took over. Kind of like what's happening right now in North Dakota with the pipeline. They just erased this entire black community to put up Central Park in this beautiful place. And then they say, well, black people don't care about the communities, and that's why they look so poor. Mm. And while we were standing on the bones and on the soil and on the blood and on the history of this former great black town that is now the white bastion of New York's success, Central Park, there was a young man up in the front speaking right behind two statues that may have been the home of a small black family just 70 to 80 years ago. And he was talking about Betsy DeVos. And he says, I wonder if you even know how to use a number two pencil. I bet you pluck food out of your teeth with them. And he was talking about Betsy DeVos, who was going to be running the United States Department of Education. And as a new person running the Department of Education, she is a big advocate of school choice. If you've never heard of school choice, what they say about it now is it gives the ability for people to pick the schools they want to go to so you're not stuck with the only options. For example, I grew up in East New York, Brooklyn. There were five schools in my neighborhood. They were all failing schools. What does that mean? It means that those schools, they were, if there were 100 kids in each of those schools, 99 of them failed their basic state math and reading test. Those are the schools I had to go to. And they're saying, no, let's give you some charter schools. Let's give you some private schools. School choice, what that meant in the 
40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and even the 90s was that when we were trying to push through Brown versus Board of Education and Supreme Court agreed and said you had to segregate schools, what, what, what white people began to do, and in particular towns in Texas and in Georgia was they would strip all the funding from the public schools and then create private schools and then give the white kids vouchers to go to those schools and then call it school choice. That was what was happening, and that created that was one of the many separations of education between black and white students that we are still feeling today. But way before we even had that school choice argument, we had another school choice argument, and it wasn't a school choice argument because there was no choice. There was no opportunity for black people to get any kind of education that they wanted. In fact, it was illegal. If you even knew how to spell me, you could be liable to get hung because a black person with an education was an anomaly that had to be shot or hung. And in 1832, some Quaker folk thought, hmm, how can we get some black people away from us and let them teach themselves and learn and empower and they opened up the first black school it eventually became Shaney State that was the first black college and then more opened up and why did they open up because they were literally not letting black people black and brown bodies into historically white universities you want to go to harvard no you don't darky you want to get away from us you want to go to yale no you don't blackie you can dig up some holes you can fix the boards but you can't learn here you want to go to columbia not happening so what happened was black and brown people had to go to these other colleges the howards the morehouses the famus the spellmans these are the colleges that they had to go to and because of that a lot when in the in the 50s and 60s and 70s you saw a huge uprising of black people and brown people because a lot of like Puerto Rican, Dominican, a lot of Hispanic people were able to go to college because of this as well, were able to go through the system and get college degrees and go into society as productive people. But over the last couple of years, partially because of Nixon, Reagan, Clinton, and even Obama, funding for HBCUs has fallen down. Also because the alumni aren't able to or have not done enough to raise money for these colleges, a lot of these colleges are falling into troubling times. And that brings us to our conversation today, because after years of having troubles, after a couple of HBCUs have actually had to close, Donald Trump, Agent Orange, Problematic White Man 101, the alpha and omega of corny, mediocre whiteness, has said that he wants to help black people. And he collected a coalition of Negroes, all from HBCUs, and he put out an executive order that said he was going to help black people. And now some of them are feeling played. And that brings us to today, to today at this moment to talk about that history. So before we begin, I know um, we do have a guest in here. I want to introduce her, Dariana Colombi. I'm pr- pretty sure I butchered the last part. I'm very sorry All the way. <laughs> Can you do a better job introducing yourself okay. than Stanley did, please, Dariana? <laughs> um, yes. So <clears throat> excuse my voice. I had a little party last night. So <laughs> uh, my name is Dariana Cologne Bib. Got very it. Easy. Bib. Got it. <laughs> and you went to Spelman. Spelman College, the illustrious Spelman College. And, and when did you graduate? 2010. Wow, okay. I know. So I'm kind of new, kind of old. I'm like in the middle. Right in the middle, right, right in the, the middle. middle, right in the middle. Like homecoming is still fun, but I go, I'm like, who are these people? <laughs> like right in the middle, right Basically. In the middle. And you're also a member of the New York Urban League Young Professionals? Yes, yes, I am affiliated with those peeps. Okay. And I'm yes. a small business owner as well. Oh, I nice. Am, and I'm an entrepreneur of five years this year. Cool. Wow, congratulations. Own, yeah, boutique public relations firm. Great. Kind of goes yeah. hand in hand with my HBCU experience, but I'll exactly. put that. Yeah. Independent blackness. So, guys, before we move <laughs> on, we do have a caller on the line. I want to give him a chance to let his voice be heard. We have James from Queens. James, let your voice be heard. Yes. You know, I tell you, these are the last days. We're going to have to get our own school and leave the country alone and separate for blacks. Do you understand? 
Yes, we do, James. And thank you very much for saying that and giving your input. I do want to say, this isn't, it isn't like we weren't doing this before. African-Americans have long been building their schools and building their towns and their own institutions. The problem is white fragility and white rage, white racist rage, has usually backlash and destroyed those institutions. Sure. Black banks had money taken directly out of them and was not returned to people. Black schools were burned down. Black towns were burned down. People were killed. So, And there's a reason why you don't see a lot of strong black institutions because they have been undermined by the corporate interests of rich people, of racist white people, and of the institutions of racism. So, you know, thank you for sharing your point, but I do want to point that out. But now, guys, I don't want to be like hamstrung on that topic. I do want to jump into the conversation. So now, I've told you why and how HBCUs were really established. I want to kind of point the conversation towards Darian a little bit. Because you went to Spelman. I went to SUNY Old Westbury in New York. I worked at City College. Those are two really good schools. They're both in New York. Why did you choose to go to an HBCU? Um, I don't know if it was really a choice, right? So uh, my educational background is uh, it's not very unique, but I'm from New York, Harlem, to be exact. And I went to private school basically my whole life. I went to public school up until third grade. And then um, I went to private school. And then I went to boarding school. Um, so actually, I really wanted to go to a PWI, which means predominantly white institution. Uh, I just, in my mind, thought that that was what success meant to go to a PWI. And so um, I applied and I got waitlisted or I didn't get in or I got into schools that I didn't want to go to. And uh, it was actually my mother who was like, you should just go to Spelman. I'd actually applied to Spelman and Howard as like safety schools, just in case. They were one of my five safety. There were two of my five safety schools. My mom was like, you should go there. I'd actually never step foot on the campus I my brother went to Morehouse though so that was the connection so Morehouse is Spelman's um, brother school it's across the street literally and he went there graduated in 01 and so my mom knew about Spelman she didn't know about Howard so she was like you should go there literally my first day on campus was the day I moved in so it wasn't really a choice but it ended up being the best choice that I've ever made Um, and I didn't apply to New York schools because I was um, in boarding school already and I didn't want to come back home so that was the main reason all right, cool. So yeah. that's that's Ariana's story. You know, it's pretty funny because I wanted to go to um, Morehouse. I got accepted. You should. I couldn't afford it. Yeah, I wanted to go to Howard's desperately, oh, yeah, and I couldn't afford it as well. <laughs> well, you know, I think that's a good point because really the thing that I wanted to jump in and talk about was about money, right? So people have put a lot of focus on Betsy DeVos's comments about how they were misguided, about how, you know, she made this comment about how it's school choice when we all know that's revisionist history because the yeah. true history you just explained very clearly clearly is that black people went to these historically black colleges and universities because they had no other choice, not because they had a choice about where they wanted to go. But the most important thing that I think we should remember, which I don't think should get lost in focusing too much on her revisionist history comments, is the fact that she now is going to be overseeing the federal agency that is responsible for roughly three-fourths of the annual federal revenue that goes to historically black colleges and universities. So in in that way, um, her that is more consequential than the fact that she made this revisionist history statement because at the end of the day she's going to be the one deciding who gets money how much money they get obviously there's this executive order that the president put out this week that moves the white house initiative on historically black colleges and universities that was developed under president obama from the department of ed to the office of the white house now some uh historically black college and university advocates have actually supported this move because they thought it would strengthen strengthen the administration 
Nation's authority um, and uh, and elevate, you know, being able to move these things forward. However, by actually moving it from the Department of Ed to the White House is going to distance the initiative from its source of funding. And because of that, there's possibility that the Department of Ed is no longer going to be the one responsible for distributing the 700 million dollars in grants. And that's going to directly impact students who want to go to HBCUs. As you just pointed out, you aren't able to because you couldn't afford it. So let's take a step back for one second, Alyssa. So what Alyssa's talking about is President Donald Trump's executive order that was supposed to be targeting HBCUs and pumping more funding into them. What the HBCU pretty much does is it it orders all the eight, all the government agencies to look into like the funding that they have and opportunities that they have that can square up with historically black colleges and universities and then to report that back to the president. It does not tell them to give any money. It does not ask to like boost funding. It does not ask like to show like how they can like work together at all. It just says, look at this thing. Along with that, like Alyssa said, it talks about connect moved in from the Department of Education to the White House. But before we get to that point, Donald Trump made this move because as he said, and as a lot of historically black college university students, administrators, administrators, professors, and donors have said, the Obama administration really failed at helping these institutions. Now before we talk about whether Obama failed or not, some people will argue that Obama didn't fail. These schools just aren't needed anymore. I disagree with that. And then others would just say that Obama did fail, but also these schools have set themselves up. It's, I feel like it's a multifaceted thing, but I really want to talk about that. Because I would disagree. I would say that Obama did not fail, but I would also talk about like the problems within the HBCU. So, Jackie, I haven't heard much from you. I want to jump to you first, and then we can kind of like springboard from there. Well, I think talking about if these schools are needed anymore or not, I mean, I, I've... My relationship with knowledge about HBCUs are through people I know that have gone to them that said that their experience there was fantastic. And it was the first place where they were in an academic setting specifically where they felt heard, right, where they felt like there was this element of otherness that they didn't experience in um, in predominantly white institutions and classrooms where they could focus on the things that they wanted to learn more about or participate in. And so I think that as we know, we're not, you know, we're not in this like post-racist society where there is no need for this kind of institution. I think there absolutely is. I can't speak to whether or not Obama failed. I don't know enough to comment on that. But I do think that these are, you know, really important institutions that should be upheld. But obviously there's, like you said, it's a multifaceted thing. So Dariana, very quickly, then we have to go to break. Yeah. Um, well, one, obviously, I think that they're ex- extremely needed at this time. I think they need to be expanded. I need, they need to be strengthened. Um, I also can't speak too much. I read a short thing about Obama and how he distributed money and how he took away some funding from HBCUs. But I'm also a person of, because I'm an entrepreneur, probably of pulling your own bootstraps up. And I think that our institutions need a lot of help to to do things on their own and not necessarily go knocking on the man's door to secure their funding. Like, I understand it, um, but we're missing out on a lot of talent because we aren't able to give people financial aid um, or whatever, whatever. So I think it, it's a lot to do with, like, them. So thank yeah. you. Sorry about that. Well, so we're going to go on a quick break, guys. When we come back, I'll be explaining what Diana means when she says that the Obama administration took some funding from HBCUs. It's a little bit more interesting than you think. I know we played this at the beginning of the show, but this song is too late not to do again. Apparently, Odessa. 
Odessa. That's the name. It's where of, my people are from. That's that's the name of the, <laughs> the uh, land of the artist, yeah. and it's called Ken. Say my name or something like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How'd you find that song, Stanley? Um, Joe Budden podcast. They do like a sleeper song, and um, Rory, the guy named Rory, he picked this song. He played it, and I heard the song. And they had an album, so I just bought the album. I'm going to say, like, the whitest thing ever right now, but yeah. right now I'm kind of obsessed with Ed Sheeran. <laughs> <laughs> I love Ed Shape of You. Shape okay, of You. Yes, oh, my seriously. God. And I like this other song obsessed. that he that he has that, of course, the name escapes me at the moment. I'll this get Week that. in Unseasoned I'll Chicken. Get you, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'll get you the name of that after the show. I but his new album is really good, and his last two albums were good. Yeah, he yeah. has pretty good music. So, guys, we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, the voice of Harlem. If you were just tuning in, we have been blessed with the presence of the super entrepreneur the serial entrepreneur she got the dreadlocks that rock to the right side and the drop top and you call her the black afro-latina kelly kapowski but she's way more litter and she's never a quitter because we know kelly quit zach morris and she don't have to say by the bell and we also have jackie cohen in here my from my jew crew and she's real cool and her hair slippery like slide pools she likes mayonnaise because she's white but she eats popeyes too black lives matter and Alyssa Fuchs. Popeyes. yes i don't eat mayonnaise actually i I think it's really good. I love mayonnaise. I love mayonnaise. I don't like mayonnaise. Get Out just came out. And it's black. I'm going to let you rock from February and March. We're okay. looking at you in April. Okay. Remember, it's Women's History Month now. Yes, yes. And now we have Alyssa Fuchs, who if she could have, she probably would have went to Howard University mm. and joined Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. <laughs> or maybe joke. a cat because you could probably bust a mean shimmy. Mm. I don't know. i got to look at you a little bit more. And then we have Selena, Selyance Hill, who travels to exotic places like Delaware, Montana, <laughs> and Baltimore. sometimes even Pennsylvania. Sometimes she stalks Nate Parker in elevators. Yeah, I did. On that hand track with the frack. Because that's what she does. I've been watching too much Bodega Boys. I'm sorry. And now, guys, if you're wondering what we were talking about, it was not just me rambling. We were talking about historically black colleges and universities. And when we walked away, we were asking who's more at fault here for some of the struggles that HBCUs have felt. Is it Barack J. Kwan Hussein Obama who tried to take over the country with his black socialism? Or is it our white angel, Donald Trump, Agent Orange? Or is it the HBCU's fault because they just had so many black people? Now, before we walked away, Dariana mentioned that some people have accused Barack Obama from taking away funding from historically black colleges and universities. I want to bring that up. What happened with the Obama administration in 2011, and it's actually hurt me because I was trying to go to law school at the time, also in 2010. It's a good thing you didn't, trust me. (laughs) Yeah, was that they made it harder to get Parent PLUS loans, Mm -hmm. which was a lot, like most people who are going to HBCUs, that's how they were getting the money to go there. Mm -hmm. And once he made it harder and they didn't explain what you had to do to be able to qualify now, it cut enrollment into HBCUs in some schools by up to 60%. Morehouse 45% 45% of their incoming class was cut because people could not attend. And all of a sudden, one of the schools that was like a pillar was in financial trouble. Along with that, lack of endowments, not enough alumni giving in money. Meanwhile, Dr. Dre is giving $200 million to University of uh, UCLA for music when he could have given it to Howard or Morehouse or Spellman. So these are some of the things that happen. Now, I do want to say, and this is my own personal ideology, it's problematic when we're asking black and brown people to fund their education on loans. 60k deep any Amen. student Amen. to fund yeah. their education Thank you, Alyssa. but any even student, more yeah. so the poorest the students and we know the demographics yeah. as we talked that race and class come have a lot to do with each other but these schools are absolutely important because even today African-American people are 20% more likely to graduate from college if they attend an HBCU and instead of a PWR predominantly white institution so these colleges and institutions are important but 
I don't want to do all the talking. I do want to get it back to you guys and the callers if they have any questions or comments. If you want to say something, if you want to know something, give us a call at 212-650-6903 or tweet us at BeHeard underscore radio. Facebook Live. If you're on Facebook Live, you already know. Leave a comment. We will get to you as soon as possible. Alyssa, I see your hand. I want to just pause you for one second because I haven't heard from Selena for a little bit. And I want to get her back into this conversation. Diana says why she thinks these schools are struggling. I've given some information. What has been your experience in people you know? Um, about why the schools are struggling? Yeah. Well, it's exactly what you said. It's uh, a lack of funding. Um, I think that alumni definitely need to do more by giving back. And yeah. if you can't give back financially, then why don't, you know, teach a, teach a class or, or mentor a student or help one of your mentees get into um, an HBCU uh, and, and help them walk them through that college pro- uh, the, the process itself. I mean, the thing is, you know, as Stanley pointed out, you know, black institutions have historically been undermined. Um, and just undercut, like, intentionally and then unintentionally. And I think that what, you know, President Obama did, even though he did expand Pell Grants, which helped right. black and brown students attend HBCUs, a lot of people, a lot of criticism that he received was, why didn't you do more that would directly help HBCUs? And the fact that he waited until, like, his last year to actually give a speech to, like, address it, that didn't help as well. Well, you know, and this is a question that I wanted to answer when Stanley was speaking before, and now I'll respond to you, which is, remember, you, you know, I agree with the things you said about the cutting back of the plus rooms. There's no way to disagree agree with that because it's a fact, right? And so we don't disagree about facts. We only disagree about opinions. We acknowledge facts. And that's what makes us a great show. That's why you should donate to our show. Anyways, um, just getting back to my point, though, which is President Obama was constrained by Congress in a lot of things. We did not just see this with respect to historically black colleges and universities. We saw this about immigration, comprehensive immigration reform that Obama wanted to do. We saw this about criminal justice reform that Obama wanted to do. We saw this about infrastructure spending that Obama wanted to do. Let me remind you that President Obama actually proposed a $30 million increase for a program that was designed to increase the number of low-income students completing degree programs that was supposed to Uh, In addition, he requested in his final budget proposal, which Congress um, disapproved both of these proposals, by the way, he requested $60.8 billion in mandatory funding over the next 10 years to make two-year college community college free, as well as to offer grants to provide free or reduced tuition to students specifically at HBCUs and minority-serving institutions in their first two years of college. What happened to these programs? Congress said, nope, we're not doing that. The debt, the deficit. Now we're getting back to this conversation about apparently now that Republicans are in office, we have all this money to spend and deficits no longer matter. So, yes, I think it's important that we hold Obama accountable for the things that he didn't do. But we also have to remember there are many things that Obama tried to do that he could not do because after he lost all those seats in the Tea Party wave in 2010, every time Obama said, let's do this, Congress said, nah, we ain't doing that. Darian, I want to. So, first of all, are we going to give Obama a pass after what Alyssa said? And also, you down with the Trump squad to see what he does? <laughs> uh, um, I mean, I, it's so difficult for me to say. Are we? Um, are we going to give Obama a pass? Right? Because I guess I really stand firm in the fact that, like, we we were started 
Um, not by ourselves, because obviously everyone knows that w- White Dollars started most of the HBCUs, Spelman specifically, Rockefeller, started our institution in 1881. So um, it's not that we're doing it alone, but I really don't want to have to use the government. So I don't want to say give Obama a pass, but we shouldn't be looking to the government to sustain, to keep our doors open and to keep our students flowing in and out um, in four years. So uh, I don't know about that. Am I down with Trump? Hell no. I I... <laughs> was disgusted by the picture I was even though our our president sent a letter um, before she went I know a lot of presidents sent letters afterwards but ours sent before to um, our alumni our alumni um, distribution she she said why she was going but I still I just wasn't rocking with it like I just feel like yeah, let me let me give you some context about what actually happened. They were supposed to have a, either a half or a full day meeting exactly. to talk about all the issues. Right. About 10 minutes before Trump walked in there, his chief of staff, Darth Vader, I mean, Steve, um, Rance Priebus came in and said, <laughs> Trump is busy. You right. all have one minute each to exactly. talk about your issues. Wow. Trump got in there. Two people spoke. They cut it short and said, okay, let's take a picture. They took a picture and they shipped them out of there. Yep. Just I mean, like that, that. that just goes to tell you, you know, he said in, in his executive order when he put it forth that, you know, we need to do more than enough for HBCUs. We need to prioritize HBCUs. But he can't even prioritize a meeting with the leaders of HBCUs. Exactly. So mm-hmm. he don't care about black Well, people. I spoke to um, Dr. David Wilson, who is the president of Morgan, wow. um, Morgan State University, uh, a day after he came back from that meeting specifically and I asked him what his views were and he basically said and um, you know it's, it was a lot of talk. I'm ready for some substance and he was just like you know don't be fooled by the photo op. You know, don't don't be fooled. Like, I mean, you know, they were all in there and and it looks good for Trump. But what is going to come out of this? And then I also asked him because we know that President Obama got a lot of criticism about for what he did or did not do to help HBCUs. I said, do you have faith that Trump will do more? And he basically was like, let's just keep watching. So go ahead. I mean, this is the person who running for office said to black people, hey, black people, what do you have to lose by voting for me? So why would we believe him that he is? is going to prioritize this kind of education at, at all, right? And so I think, I mean, do we think, obviously we weren't fooled, everybody in this room was not fooled by what he was trying to do um, with this meeting, but do you think that there was a change in opinion about Blanc, uh, about Trump and his, his, um, his sort of thoughts on this issue? Well, there are plenty of Uncle Toms who are always open to getting on their knees for a white man. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, and there's also people who just don't know much about Trump, so they go, this seems good. Alyssa? Yeah, but I also wanted to add something. Another big plank in Trump's platform was to reduce the amount of crime, right? He's talked a lot about crime reduction. <laughs> Most right. of that has come through xenophobic comments or racist comments about the African-American community, about undocumented immigrants. But just putting this out there, and I don't think Trump's actually going to follow through, so I'll say that to start with. The number one way you reduce crime is through education. If you want to keep people out of the prison system, and you have to have them educated. So if he really wanted to help black people, which I don't think he does, because I mean, Jeff Sessions has been appointed the Attorney General, um, but if he really wanted to help black people, and we know that the incarceration rates among young young black men are high, then they would prioritize money being spent on funding his historically black colleges and universities on Pell Grants for African-American students that want to go to traditionally white schools and just on education generally in, you know, inner cities and in other communities where there are education problems, where are there is a large population of black and Hispanic students because 
if we were to increase education funding and increase education spending, then we would be able to educate our young people and we'd be able to educate young black men. And then we would have also a reduction in crime and a reduction in our prison population. So those things are interrelated and we can't forget that. So, uh, I mean, that's why I think Trump is all talk and no action. He's definitely all talk and no action. We do have a caller on the line. James, I apologize for the wait, but please let your voice be heard. This is James from Queens. Yeah, I I think what you lost there is that a lot of students are graduated out of the colleges and don't have no jobs, number one. And number two, they got a debt over to their ears. And the question is, how are you going to pay back a, a debt to these so-called big colleges and there's no jobs? And then how many of those students are coming out have skills that are marketable? If you want to look for a football job or a basketball job, well, yeah. But what about the engineering and architects that are going to school, making something out of their lives? they got jobs in the construction. But now in the other departments of the so-called liberal uh, uh, academic department, they're in debt. James, I can't really argue with you when you put up those kind of, that kind of information. I do want to point out that unemployment in the U.S. right now is about 4.6%. Nationally, for African Americans, it is 8.9%. And that happens for multiple reasons. But one of the biggest reasons is because we still have discriminatory practices in our hiring. And we have more African Americans with college degrees than ever before. So it isn't like people aren't qualified. It's just that when you have a recession, it hits people of color the hardest. That's not an opinion. That's just the facts. We have to wrap up this conversation. I want to give everyone 30 seconds very quickly to someone that thought they have any no one seems to have any so i'm just gonna wrap it up right here <laughs> so the, the conversation is very simple what you had the other day was 100 hbcu presidents meet with the man that has promised to go to these communities and help them and empower them to do great and to transform their schools this is the same man that has been sued for racism on multiple occasions this is the same man that appointed an attorney general that tried to stop black people from voting in his district and said the kkk the only thing he doesn't like about them is that they smoke weed this is the same man who was called mexicans immigrants and undocumented people, rapists, killers, and has spit out all kinds of propaganda. He has shown us nothing to exhibit empathy or humanity. So why all of a sudden would he care about black people when his history has shown the opposite? Historically, black colleges and universities are not just important to African-American and Latino people. They are a pillar of this country's history because they are the perfect example of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps when all you have is a broken foot and bended toes. These schools are built up from the history and blood of slavery by people who had no education, no finances, no connections, no money, no help, but were desirable and desperate for an education that they might not ever get but their children or that your grandchildren could have and with this passion and with this hunger for knowledge and with this determination despite aggressive white oppression particularly during jim crow and post-reconstruction they still built these institutions that have educated some of the greatest minds this country has ever seen and now they are falling just slightly and they're falling not because they're necessarily bad schools but because the institution of racism doesn't just affect black and brown people it affects black and brown institutions donald trump is saying that he wants to be a pillar of this institution i want to be very clear he is not a pillar of this institution all he is trying to do is stabilize it with mayonnaise white supremacy and a little bit of tokenism for all those hbcu presidents who went up to meet with president trump you know what i get what you were trying to do but i'll tell you what he did he made you a token on a shake 
sticky pillar that will crumble the minute he no longer needs you. You've been had. With that being said, guys, we got to go on a quick break. When we come back, it'll be the, the quickie. Unless it's going to school you on what's going on in the world because, hey, she's smarter than us. Billy truck, yeah, that's my choice to ride. Always keep some on the side, yeah, yeah. Don't stand too close, my diamonds gonna bite. I get drugs for the right price, yeah, yeah. She gon' eat this like it's rice. We are back. So if you've been listening to our show for a while, then you are probably aware we have had many, many, many conversations about police misconduct, about problematic police departments, about institutional racism, about Black Lives Matter, about the killings of Freddie Gray, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Philando Castile, and on and on and on and on. One of the ways that the Obama administration dealt with police misconduct and police brutality was through Department of Justice investigations into problematic police departments. During the Obama administration, under Attorney General Lynch and Attorney General Holder, the Department of Justice investigated and in some cases brought civil rights lawsuits against many of these municipalities that were accused of violating people's rights. Of course, the people who we are talking about were predominantly black and Latino, and in many of these civil rights violations were systemic, and they were systematic. For example, the Department of Justice under Obama looked into cases in Ferguson, in Chicago, in Baltimore, in Portland, in Newark, and in Seattle, among other places. In 2011 alone, Obama's Department of Justice brought 17 investigations into police departments across the country for engaging in systemic and systematic racism against their residents. President Obama's legacy includes criminal justice reform through the use of these types of investigations. And according to the ACLU, it was one tool that Department of Justice had been able to use to advance comprehensive police reform in some of the most troubled communities, especially in light of the fact that Congress absolutely did not want to do anything about criminal justice, or I should say only wanted to do minimal things about criminal justice. Under Tom Perez, who is now the head of the Democratic National Committee, he was the one responsible for overseeing these investigations during Obama's first term. If you didn't know that, something you should know about Tom Perez, for all the bad rap that he's gotten about being establishment, he actually headed up the Civil Rights Division during Obama's first term. During Obama's second term, a guy named Vanita Gupta headed up the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, and the president used this tool in order to push these investigations and to pressure and in some cases force municipal police departments to reform their basically racist practices and racist policing. So what is going on now? Well, as you know, Trump got elected, unfortunately, and he appointed Jeff Sessions, the alleged perjurer um, and definite racist, to head the Department of Justice. Jeff Sessions announced last week that the Department of Justice will not continue this Obama-era policy or practice of investigations into police departments and will, quote-unquote, pull back on federal scrutiny of police departments for civil rights violations against people of color. Sessions said, and I quote, rather than dictating to local police how to do their jobs or spending scarce federal resources to sue them in court, we should use our money, research and expertise to help them figure out what is happening and determine the best ways to fight crime. Of course, that sounds like a, like a lofty goal, but what it really means is that the Department of Justice will no longer involve itself in making sure that police departments do not systemically and systematically violate the rights of black and Latino people living in their communities. Session 
has suggested in the past that these types of investigations by the Department of Justice actually interfere with the police department's ability to do their jobs. This is something that's known as the Ferguson effect. The Ferguson effect has been thoroughly disbunked on numerous occasions through multiple studies, which shows that police officers actually are not affected by these types of investigations and that these investigations are necessary to make sure we are holding police departments accountable for egregious violations of people's civil rights. This major change will likely have a broad and real consequences for people of color throughout the country. For example, um, in Chicago, at the end of the Obama administration, the Department of Justice had released a scathing report on systemic police abuses within the Chicago Police Department, and the Obama administration was in the process of preparing to negotiate a federal monitoring program with the Chicago Police Department in which the federal government would monitor the Chicago PD to make sure they were not engaging in racist practices and institutions institutionalized racism. But now Jeff Session has publicly questioned the Chicago report and has come out to say that this type of monitoring agreement, both in Chicago and other places, does not have any value. As we know, that is absolutely false. We have seen through the Ferguson investigation that it absolutely did have value, that it proved that they were stopping and ticketing black people at an extremely high rate, and they were doing this to fill the coffers off the backs of the most of the poorest residents living within the community and also residents of color of which we have discussed there is a lot of overlap between race and class um, this what this means is that if the Department of Justice does not take any further action the Chicago Police Department will be able to run around and continue engaging in the same types of practices that they had been engaging before the Department of Justice under the Obama administration issued this report. Uh, Sessions was also dismissive of police-perpetrated shootings. He suggested that viral videos, such as the ones that showed the deaths of Philando Castile and Tamir Rice, which I mentioned earlier, actually make the police department's life more difficult. He said, quote, in this age of viral videos and targeted killings of police, many of our men and women in law enforcement, uh, law enforcement are becoming more cautious. There is no evidence to back that up. And in fact, you have a First Amendment right to film the police as long as you are not getting in between the police and what they are doing or otherwise interfering with their investigation, you absolutely are well within your rights to take out your camera and film the police. Yet Sessions thinks you interfering, I'm sorry, Session thinks that you engaging in your First Amendment rights and engaging in First Amendment protected activity actually harms police officers. As I said, there is no evidence to back that up. While Sessions did not directly address the Black Lives Matter movement in his speech, this policy change will undoubtedly put a new roadblock in the path of Black Lives Matter, it will make it harder to fight these injustices, which means we must step up and we must fight even harder. Of course, this is the latest in the line of Obama-era policies that Sessions has rolled back since his confirmation. According to reports, Sessions was behind President Trump's removal of protections for transgender students, which I discussed on last week's Quickie, and he also played a large role in the Department of Justice decision to withdraw a lawsuit challenging Texas's controversial voter ID law, which already was impacting people of color. Uh, So what should we make of this all? Well, what we should make of this is what we already know. Jeff Sessions is a blazing racist who should have to resign because he lied to Congress under oath and apparently is valuing the lives of police officers over the lives of citizens because he seems to think incorrectly, or actually maybe he knows but just doesn't care, that viral videos and investigations into police departments are more important than civil rights. So what I will say to that is keep fighting, keep resisting. Black Lives Matter needs to keep stepping 
propping up, keep holding protests, keep holding police departments feet to the fire. Civil rights attorneys are stepping up and continuing to bring lawsuits against problematic police departments. And we're going to have to do this on our own now, guys, because we can't expect the Department of Justice to step up and help us out. All right. No, that's absolutely true. Uh, Thanks to everyone who tuned in and called in to let your voice be heard. Special thanks for Dariana for joining us live in studio today. We appreciate you for coming up. Uh, Guys, if you love the show and want to support the show, check us out at GoFundMe.com slash BeHeard radio you can also subscribe to us on itunes at ly no let your voice be heard radio we changed it but if you like our website and you like uh, editorials and you like to read especially things that stanley writes you can check us out at lyvbh.com until then enjoy the rest of your sunday and we'll continue to resist working is crazy yeah, yeah. and i ain't made me too i wish i could buy me space